and welcome to the Hearsay Sidebar, a podcast where the Hearsay team gets together around the microphone to talk about the legal side of what's in the news. The Hearsay Sidebar is a podcast by Lext Australia, a legal innovation company that makes the law easier to access and easier to practice. Earlier this month, the High Court ruled that the indefinite immigration detention of a Rohingya man known as NZYQ, that's his pseudonym, was unlawful. Now, the full text of that decision is, as of recording on the 23rd of November, yet to be released, but the government has already stepped in with emergency legislation to address what it sees as a risk to the Australian community and immigration detention system. Rejoining us in the Curiosity Recording Room to discuss the NZYQ decision, what led to it and some of the insights coming out of it, is podcast favourite and immigration superstar, Marsha Basile from MB Lawyers. Marsha, thanks so much for joining us again on Hearsay. Oh, thanks so much, David. What an introduction. It's great to be back. Thank you for having me. Excited to get into this decision because it's not the first decision about indefinite detention regarding migrants, especially regarding humanitarian migrants. Tell us a little bit about the history here before NZYQ. Sure. So NZYQ is monumental because it reverses 20 years worth of legal precedent. 20 years ago, the High Court said it was okay to keep people in indefinite detention. And that was through the case of Al-Khateb in 2004. So to have that, in, in effect, reversed is quite a huge change in the way we'll manage this going forward. Mm, extraordinary. And I think a little unexpected given the judgment in Alcatab, right? Correct, correct. And we can see this in the government's backpedaling to manage the outcome of the of this NZYQ case. Yeah, it's kind of battle stations in mm. the uh, legislative drafting rooms in Canberra, right? Correct. Let's talk about the case itself then. NZYQ Notwithstanding that's a, a pseudonym, a collection of characters there, it is a person. Yes. NZYQ is a person, he's a human being. Why was the plaintiff in immigration detention and how long had he been there? Sure. So NZYQ is a pseudonym because he is a person where protection claims were found. He is a Rohingyan 30-year-old man who had been in immigration detention for five years the reason why he was in immigration detention is because he had no visa. His visa history is quite complex. When he first arrived to Australia, he came in 2012 on a boat, subsequently was issued some sort of temporary visa, but committed a crime while in Australia, quite a serious crime. And as a result of that, his visa was cancelled. And if you don't hold a visa in Australia, then you are required to be held in detention. Yeah. And I suppose that's one of the confounding factors for NZYQ is this commission of a crime because it meant that I suppose his transition from arriving in Australia by boat to his present state or immediately prior to this is his state of immigration detention is not sort of archetypal. I think when we think of kind of indefinite detention of humanitarian migrants or people seeking protection, we're often thinking people who arrive by boat and are then sent to offshore processing and are kind of held immediately from there. But he did have some period in the Australian community. He sure did, with a holding a lawful visa. And then after committing the crime, serving his sentence in the Australian system, and then thereafter no visa, therefore in detention. But you make a really important point, David, which is we're talking about a cohort of people that not just in detention, they're in immigration detention with the view of no prospect of return mm. or removal from Australia. And this is what this test 
test is or this case is about is coming up with a test. What do we do with these people that we can't return, nor do we want to release into the Australian community? Yeah, well, I mean, that was the other sort of confounding factor here for NZYQ, right? Effectively stateless, can't return to Myanmar. So sort of between a rock and a hard place, can't deport him, that's dangerous, can't allow him back into the community, he has no visa. So how did these factors, I suppose, both the criminal charge or the criminal conviction and the statelessness, that inability to return the plaintiff to anywhere else in the world, how did that factor into the court's decision? Sure. And there's another compounding factor to add to that, which is he was found to be a lawful refugee. So not only was he stateless, so an unlawful non-citizen who was stateless, he was also an unlawful non-citizen who committed a crime that was stateless and has refugee protection obligations owed to him. Mm. And all those compounding factors are for his profile, but there are at least 96 other people in immigration detention who are like him. Mm. And it's how do we manage that cohort where we don't want them in the Australian community, but not only is it that we can't return them because they're stateless, but we can't return them because of our international law obligations of non-refoulement because he's a genuine refugee. And the outcome of the High Court case is to balance all of those considerations. And from the human rights element, there were two human rights organisations that represented that dimension at the High Court as friends of the court, which was really important. They're celebrating this decision, of course, because it's a liberation for for upholding human rights in, mm. in Australia. And so those compounding factors, it, there's a huge tension between them because on one hand, there's the criminal element and the satisfaction to the Australian community of keeping us safe and what our expectations are. And also the, I guess, the palette of the current government as to what we consider is acceptable risk for the Australian community when it comes to people who are not Australians who have character issues, who gets to stay and who are willing to keep and who we're saying we can't keep, balanced with all those other obligations of namely refugee and non-refoulement obligations under international law, but also stateless. Where do we send him? And Mm. part of the narrative or exploration in this case was, can we find another country to take him? Because we can't return him to Myanmar. He's Rohingyan, found to have protection obligations. Can anyone else take him? And they went through that process. Apparently, they approached five countries. No one was interested. The five eyes is what we call them. None of them were interested except for the US who were thinking about it potentially. And there was nothing that came out of that. So the net position was, there's nowhere to send him. Mm. You know what this reminds me of when you've got all of these kind of complicating factors that make a particular factual matrix in a particular case a little bit murky. It reminds me of something I was told when I was working in public interest advocacy a while ago, which is that it's always the edge cases that make law, right? Correct. If it's a really bright line, if it's really clear that the case should be going one way or the other, chances are it's never going to make it to hearing. Something's going to get slaughtered out. There's going to be a diplomatic outcome. There's going to be an administrative outcome. But here, where you've got all these confounding factors, you've got sort of the perfect storm of legal ambiguity to get something before the High Court and therefore make new law. Sure, sure. And he's not unique. As I said, there's 96 people like him who are in indefinite detention. And so when we use the word indefinite, it means there's no prospects of of them ever leaving. Mm. So it's not that they're in in detention and there's going to be somewhere we can send them or there's a limited time. This is a situation where people basically are in that incarceration, quasi-incarceration for life. And so the case talked about, is this the right approach? Can the legislator 
is this in line with our constitution? Can mm. the government make rules which are punitive or is this not their lane? And that's ultimately what it came down to is that they were not in their lane and they did not uphold the constitution. This is the judiciary's space. So those interested in the constitution, the separation of powers in Chapter 3, basically this high court ruling is not a judgment on criminal or whether it's okay to have criminals in in you know in Australian society what it really is about is the power to make laws about who stays and who goes and how long someone can stay in immigration detention yeah. and that the legislator does not have that power to keep them indefinitely there. That's a, a good point and probably something we glossed over. This is not an appeal to the High Court. This is an application to the High Court in its original jurisdiction yes. to consider a constitutional issue. Correct. Can the Commonwealth make laws that indefinitely detain people? Correct. And I suppose something that's interesting about this, and I appreciate it's hard to comment on when we don't even have mm. the text of a decision, but Australia's High Court has gone through I suppose, waxing and waning periods over its long history concerning the strength of the influence of international law on domestic law in Australia, how strongly international laws influence the decisions of Australian courts. And we've had some recent changes to the composition of the High Court. We've had a few retirements, a few appointments, a change in the Chief Justice. Knowing that we don't have a judgment and it's difficult to say much without written reasons, do you think this is marking another change in the era of the High Court, in how this High Court is going to approach other similar decisions that require us to weigh the power to make domestic law versus international law obligations? Oh, yeah, 100%. And the reason why I say that as well is there was another immigration matter at the High Court recently as well, and again, it found in favour of the plaintiff that the government overstepped their constitutional powers and went out of their lane again. So it came down to stay in your lane. So I do think this new bench will be looking at making those lanes very clear for the government. And we actually do anticipate more challenge in the immigration law space because of these new laws that the government just released, express laws that just came in to manage the result of this High Court case, which basically resulted in these people, the plaintiff, along with 93 other people that were held in indefinite detention to be released into the Australian community. Yeah, well, let's talk about this new legislation sure. because it's come on pretty quickly before we've even got reasons from the High Court's decision. It's got bipartisan support. Both the government and the opposition yes, want to get this through quickly. What's this legislation aiming to do? Sure. So it is the speediest piece of legislation I've seen in a long time, and it is aimed at managing that cohort that's in the community in line with what they feel is protection of the Australian community and Australian expectations. So it's this concept that we have people who've got criminal history outside mixing with Australians. Now, the issue really is for human rights is we already have that they just happen to be Australian. Your neighbour could be yeah. an Australian person who committed a crime and he's sharing your fence and that's okay. But what these rules are about is those people who are not Australian, mm. they've committed a crime, they've done their time, but we don't want them sharing your back fence. But guess what? This high court ruling has said they have to. So while they have to and our hands are tied, i.e. the government saying this, we're going to put some rules in place about what these people are allowed to do what visas they will hold while they are in the community. They will be holding something called a bridging visa, 
which is the worst bridging visa you can possibly have. There's nothing lower than that, but it gives them some sort of status. It has a short-term period. It needs to be renewed. And connected to that renewal is compliance. Compliance is going to be quite tricky because the government in this legislation has introduced new bridging visa conditions to be attached that attract criminal sanctions for breach. Wow, that's pretty uncommon. Very uncommon. So the types of conditions include monitoring, ankle bracelets. Ankle bracelets? Ankle bracelets. Wow. Reporting to the department, who they associate with, how much money they can earn and capping that, where they work. So it's very close monitoring of these people in the Australian community. Interesting component is not only do they have to be compliant to get a renewal, but this new sanction of criminality attached to it means that if there's breach, this is another way for the government to take them and put them in some sort of detention, or albeit not immigration detention. So it's an interesting way to do things. I think when I read it, it's very similar to the problems they've had with this NZYQ case. So I, mm. we do expect it to be challenged. The legal community is not happy with it. It stinks from here to high heaven in terms of, again, being in their lane. It looks very punitive. So again, tapping into the constitutional issues. So we do expect it to be challenged again at the high court. We just need the reasons to come through yeah. first. But The rationale really is protection of the community. The media is having a field day with this as well. They're all talking about, look at the criminal history of these people. So the Australian community who are not in that human rights space necessarily, the average Aussie might feel it very uncomfortable to share a backyard with someone from immigration detention. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I suppose one of the things that's unusual about this legislation, not only is the specific measures that you just described, but also... When you see a decision like this, and we've had decisions like it in the past where the government has quickly passed legislation to plug a gap that's been created by a decision, and that happens both the state and the federal level, often you see that legislation essentially preserving the status quo, essentially attempting to return things to the way they were before the decision, bring things back in line with how they already were. But because of this separation of powers issue, really, that's not possible. And so what we're seeing is a entirely new regime for handling this cohort being set up really quickly. Really quickly and almost setting them up to fail so that they can find ways to put them in detention but not immigration detention. One thing we should quickly explain, what we're talking about here is the separation of powers between the High Court and our Commonwealth Government. The Commonwealth Government having a very limited set of powers under the Constitution. Sure, sure. But it is interesting in this case because it brings into intersection different areas of law, Mm. really brings into focus constitutional law and how that works with the Migration Act, which is a Commonwealth law, and then how that interacts with crimes laws, which are mostly state-based. And Mm. in this case, with this Rohingyan man committed a crime which was in New South Wales and managed under the New South Wales Crimes Act. And then you've got that linking in with the Commonwealth definition of good character and how breach of criminal laws can result in not meeting migration definition for character. And then, of course, you've got that refugee 
and human rights area too. So on so many levels, this case is so fascinating and to just try and peel it away to see what's in it for you. Yeah, well, I I bet. And I bet your professional community, your professional network's been pretty interested in this case. What's been the response? So they're very pro the decision, the High Court decision. It's in line with our expectations of how the constitution should be applied, the reasoning so far, without the decision, of course, but what's been shared so far seems to align with our expectations. Definitely, it's wonderful news for our refugee and immigration lawyers in that space who deal with people who are facing really traumatic situations such as statelessness or have protection rights owed to them. And they are held in detention for an average, as they quote, about 708 days. And so the cohort we're talking about, you know, have at least, and this particular person has been five years. So we're talking about people who are traumatized and then held in indefinite detention with no prospect of ever leaving in the foreseeable future. And that's some key words that the High Court uses as well about the test at what point is it that this person is indefinite is there a point where they can be returned? And that's where that researching about which countries can take them or can we return them? Mm. And how long do you have to wait till you make a decision that, you know, is not foreseeable? Yeah, well, that's a good point. It wasn't indefinite in the sense of uncertain. Mm. It was indefinite in the sense of unending, I suppose. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And so for our refugee friends, lawyers, they're loving this. It's a win for human rights and it's in line with their expectations as well. Well, we're nearly out of time on this topic, Marsha. Before you go, what's next on this story? I suppose we've got to wait and see the judgment. Sure do. And then there'll be that challenge for the current legislation, which introduces that bridging visa R and and all those conditions attached to it. I expect that to come through as well. Yeah. Well, has the new legislation passed? It has. Yeah. Wow. That was quick. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it has. Yep. One day. Yeah. Wow. That's fast. Oh, well, I guess for immigration lawyers, immigration professionals, anyone who's interested in this story, get the popcorn and watch this space. Absolutely. Marsha, thanks so much for joining us on Sidebar. Thank you. You've been listening to the Hearsay Sidebar. Sidebar is our fun, free podcast about legal news. But if you're an Australian lawyer, you can sign up to the original Hearsay the Legal podcast at htlp.com.au. That's htlp.com.au to get all 10 of your CPD points by listening to entertaining interviews with lawyers, judges and other leading figures in the law on demand, on the go and at an unbeatable price. That was HTLP for Hearsay the Legal podcast. Hearsay Sidebar is produced by Ross Davis with help from Jacob Malby. Make sure you follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you'll be notified whenever we release a new episode. If you like the show, leave us a rating on your preferred podcast platform because it helps other law geeks just like you find us. Thanks for listening.